Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now please let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. And Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity, and was a widow till she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. So at the beginning of this text, we meet an old man named Simeon. And at the end of the text, we meet an old woman named Anna. According to verse 26, it has been revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Christ. And so when Jesus is brought into the temple, when he's eight days old, God puts it in the heart of Simeon to come too. And he recognizes the child and takes him into his arms and blesses God. And then according to verse 38, at that very hour, Anna came near also, and she recognized the child, we, we are to suppose, and begins to thank God and speak about the babe to people around her. So here we have two old Jewish saints, the very best of the old covenant passing away as the new breaks in. And the question I've asked myself this Christmas is, why these two? Why these two chosen for this special privilege of recognizing and receiving the Christ for who He really was? I think Luke wants us to ask that question because he stops to tell us about these people. Verse 25, Simeon is a righteous and devout man and the Holy Spirit is upon him. In verse 37, Anna scarcely departs from the temple, worshiping God with fasting and prayer night and day, and she's upwards of 84 years old. 
But the thought that jumps off the page when you compare these two is the similarity between verse 25 and 38 in that both were looking for and hoping for God to do something to Israel. See verse 25, Simeon was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Then look at verse 38. Anna spoke of the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, I assume Anna is among that number of those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And I assume that the reason that she spoke in particular to those people who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem is because those are the kind of people who are open to see and receive the Christ for who He really is. The question we've been asking now for four Advent messages, which we're concluding today, is how is the human heart prepared to receive Christ for who He really is? And I think the answer today that we are called upon to focus on in this text is this. God prepares a person to receive Christ by stirring up a longing for consolation and redemption that can only come from Christ. I'll say it again. God prepares people to receive Christ for who He really is by stirring up a deep, insatiable longing for a consolation and redemption that can only come through Christ, not through what the world can offer. It's clear from this text that God had prepared Simeon and Anna in that way. Simeon looking for the consolation of Israel. Anna day and night for 70 plus years in the temple, fasting and worshiping. And what do you think she was fasting for? Hallowed be thy name. Let your kingdom come. Let him come. And it's true that God prepares for His second coming in that same way. Consider this text from Hebrews 9. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save whom? Those who are eagerly waiting for Him. It will be just the same in that day. He will be received by those who are waiting. Or consider this text from Paul in 2 Timothy 4. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness on that day which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me. And not only to me, but to all who have 
loved His appearing. Are you going to get a crown on that day? Do you love the prospect of the appearing of Christ? Are you a Simeon and an Anna with respect to the second coming, just like they were with respect to the first coming, praying every day, Maranatha, Thy kingdom come! That's the way to prepare to receive Him for who He really is. But what I want to focus on this morning is that there is a third coming of Christ. Not the first into history. Not the second to bring it all to consummation. But in the middle, a coming in what we call conversion. And here too, I want to stress that God prepares the heart of people to recognize and to receive Christ for who He really is by stirring up within people a longing for a consolation and a redemption that the world has proven unable to give them. Let me illustrate before I go to the text with Martin Luther. Some of you know the story. He was riding on a horse during a storm and a thunderbolt struck right in front of him, knocked him right off his horse. And in terror, he cried out, Have mercy, St. Anne! And vowed to go into the monastery and become a monk. He was going to be a lawyer. And to his father's utter dismay, he kept his vow and went into the monastery and became a monk. And Martin Luther labored with every single means the church of that day taught him to have peace with God, and he could not find it. He labored in good works. He labored in the merits of the saints. He sought confession and absolution. He tried the ladder of mysticism. And on top of all this, Staupitz, his superior, said, Martin, I'm going to make you professor of divinity at the University of Wittenberg and you're going to teach Bible. And he felt like the world had crashed in on him. Now, what prepared Martin Luther to see and receive Christ for who he really was? Let me read you his own testimony as he was studying for those lectures. I greatly longed, I have that underlined, to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing unjust. My situation was that. Although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. And therefore I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet... I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning, I underline that, to know what he meant. 
night and day. I underlined that. I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. That's the conversion of Martin Luther. I greatly longed to understand. I had a great yearning to know what it meant. Night And day I pondered. How did God prepare Martin Luther to see and receive Christ for who he really was? He stirred up a yearning for a consolation for his conscience and redemption for his sin that he knew could not be given by anything in this world. He tried it all. And God saved him. And God does that again and again and again. He may be doing it to some of you in this Advent season as you draw near to celebrate Christmas. He may be graciously and tenderly frustrating you with all your Christless enterprises. He may be filling you with longings and desires that can't find any satisfaction in this world. And what I want to do is to point out why you should set your heart on Christ this morning as the satisfaction Actually, the source and satisfaction of all the longings that are in your heart that you have not been able to find anything adequate for in this world. Reason number one. I only have two. They both come from this text. Reason number one for why you should set your heart on Christ for the satisfaction of that longing is because He is the consolation of Israel. Verse 25. The hope that Simeon had for the consolation of Israel is the fulfillment of what was expressed back in Isaiah 40. Literally, it says, Console, console my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. So what is the consolation of Israel? The consolation of Israel is the application of the tenderness of God to a war-weary people. The consolation of Israel is the application of the pardon of God to a sin-sick people. The consolation of God is the restoration of everything in our past that has been lost. 
The consolation of God is a heavenly father's tender affection for his children. The consolation of God is the pardoning of all our sins and the burying of them in the depths of the sea. Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel and he found it in Jesus Christ. Now, don't rule yourself out of this by saying it says the consolation of Israel and I'm not part of Israel. I'm a Gentile. Because this book was written for Theophilus, a Roman official and a Gentile, and God bent over backwards in this chapter to make sure that us Gentiles would not be left out. Look at verses 29 to 32. Simeon, moved by the Holy Spirit, says, Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, we could put in consolation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. Nobody is to be excluded from the consolation in this baby's bright face. The consolation of God is for His people Israel a glory, and for us poor Gentiles a light of salvation. Jesus Christ is the consolation of the Father's open arms to Jew and Gentile. Jesus Christ is the consolation of God's universal amnesty held out to all rebellious creatures this morning. Jesus Christ is a divine consolation in covering all our past sins and failures and fears and guilt and shame and doubt and anger and hate covered by Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of this great text from Isaiah 49:13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has consoled His people and will have compassion upon His afflicted. And so that's reason number one why you should set your heart on Christ this morning because there is in every one of you a longing for consolation. None of you looks back whether it's five minutes and the attitude you've had in the service or whether it's 50 years and says, I am so satisfied this is the way I've been. Not a person in this room says that. Every one of us longs for some consolation that it's all right, even though that's the way I've been. And that's what's held out, number one, this morning. Second reason. Jesus is the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna spoke of him in verse 38 to those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's almost as though Luke wanted us to see in these two phrases a fulfillment of Isaiah 52.9. Listen to this. It's just remarkable. 
Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has consoled His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Think that's an accident that Luke put those together like that? Sort of fulfilling that one text. What's the difference now? Is there a difference between consoling His people Israel and redeeming His apple of His eye, Zion, Jerusalem? Not much. But this, I think, consolation, I think, speaks to those longings for healing and restoration of all past losses and miseries. In Isaiah, the context is that the people had experienced judgment from God upon their lives in exile, and they had experienced guilt and fear and loneliness and death. And consolation meant God coming to them, gathering them like lambs in a shepherd's arm and saying, it's past, it's gone, it's all right now. That's consolation as I understand it from these Old and New Testament texts. Redemption is a little different. Redemption means deliverance, freeing, liberation from enemies that yet surround and threaten. Now, where do I get that idea? The word redemption is used only one other time in all the Gospels. It's in Luke 1, verse 68. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. John the Baptist's father is just exulting in his prophetic song. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited, and literally it says, He has visited and made redemption for His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. So, Zechariah declares that redemption is a work of God And then he defines it in terms of power, a horn. You remember Christmas 1981? This bull standing on this platform with his horn spread 11 feet across. And Satan, the lion, impaled on one end. The horn of salvation, power over the enemy. And he goes on to say to deliver us from our enemies and all who hate us. So the second reason and the last reason I'll mention this morning that you should look to Christ and set your heart on Him for your longing is because not a person in this room is without longing for victory over the enemies that threaten your life. And I don't know what it is for you Alcohol, drugs, lust, money, failing, job, health, relationships, just danger, who knows, personality problem. The second reason for coming to Christ is not only that everything in the past can go buried in the depth of the sea, but everything in the future can be conquered. To be sure, it takes time for many things. And finally, in the end, 
Everything won't be conquered until the last day. But victory will come to those who turn to this babe like Anna and Simeon with longing in their heart. Restoration for past losses. Liberation from future enemies. Forgiveness and freedom. Pardon and power. Healing and sealing forevermore. Well, four messages asking the question, how do our hearts get ready to receive Christ for who He really is? How do they all fit together? It's real simple. I close with a summary. In preparing your heart for Christ... Whether you are outside Christ and need this morning to close with Him in faith and be saved, or whether you are inside Christ and long for more of Him, these things are true. Number one, here's what God does. There must happen a holy disenchantment with the praise of men. How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God. Second, there must be a holy disenchantment with the power and pleasures of money. The Pharisees heard all these things and mocked Him, for they were lovers of money. Third, alongside these holy disenchantments, there must arise a longing for a consolation for your past and a redemption for your future that you discover cannot be satisfied in the world by any of its offerings. And fourth, there must be Beyond flesh and blood, a revelation from our Father in heaven, opening the eyes of our hearts so that we say with Peter, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the consolation of all my losses, the redemption over all my enemies. I see you for who you really are. And I receive you.